Hi, everyone. I'm Sheikh. Welcome to Humans of AI, where we meet the people shaping the tech that's changing our world. Today's guest is Rob Katz, the VP of Product for Responsible AI and Tech at Salesforce. Thanks so much for joining, Rob. Thanks for having me, Sheikh. Yeah, Rob, you've had such a cool career and so many different experiences. Before diving into any of that, I want to ask you my favorite question. How would you describe your work to a five-year-old? Uh, well, that's a great question because I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. So if you <laughs> average them together, I, uh, I would say that I work with other grown-ups to help ensure that the technologies and the tools that we use are designed and built in a way that's safe and inclusive for everybody. That's a great answer. I think your kids might have a bigger vocabulary than mine then. Cool. Well, uh, 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 let's take a step backward then. Uh, tell us about your career story, Robin, how you got where you are. Um, thanks. I think that the real takeaway is serendipity um, <laughs> is always uh, your friend, or it was for me. Um, so I, I've always had an interest in trying to work at the intersection of business and positive social impact. So um, when I was in undergrad, I was very interested in how businesses and political organizations and economies functioned in a way that could be more equitable for everybody. And after I graduated from undergrad, I worked in a nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. called the World Resources Institute. And I did some work on how businesses can be um, engines of growth in emerging markets and developing economies. I then made a move to working in a um, four-impact venture capital fund called Acumen. And at Acumen, I was um, on the team that helped to do the investment decision-making and the learnings from those investments that we were making. As we were investing in entrepreneurs who were building businesses that serve middle and low-income people, often forgotten in emerging markets with key products and services like healthcare services or agriculture services, clean water, clean energy. So for example, Acumen invested in a couple of entrepreneurs who were building an off-grid energy company in northern India that uses discarded rice husks, which are typically an agricultural waste product, as the fuel for gensets that could be built and operated locally and could um, displace the use of kerosene in those communities, uh, which people were paying for. And people, instead of paying for kerosene, would pay for the appliance that they owned. So one light bulb cost a certain amount per month. Two light bulbs cost a certain amount per month. Two light bulbs and a fan. Two light bulbs, a fan, and a television, so on and so forth. Um, and it became a great opportunity for, a, uh, for an investor, um, but it was not something that a typical venture fund wanted to get into because it was a higher risk and it was in a very hard to reach area. Um, and yet that was something that Acumen was very interested in. Um, so during that stint, I had the opportunity and the pleasure to live and work outside of the United States. And for someone who grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, that was pretty eye-opening in a good way. While I was living and working in India, I applied to and was accepted into the Stanford Graduate School of Business off the wait list. So uh, <laughs> here's to the people who get in, just sneak in under the, under the line. Um, but it was a great opportunity and a real privilege to go to the Graduate School of Business. And while I was there, 
Uh, two important things happened. Most importantly, I met my wife. Uh, at the time, we were not married, but she was in the class ahead of me, and we'll get back to that in a minute. And the second is that I was in Silicon Valley during kind of the halcyon days of tech, which was tech can do great things. Tech is good. All things tech are great. And uh, there were a lot of really cool things happening in the tech space in 2012, 2013, uh, 2014, which is when I was in grad school. And it was also really clear that the technologies and the companies that were building these technologies and the people that were building these technologies were where the next opportunity for impact was going to lie. And so I was able to spend time at Stanford getting a little bit more aware of and involved in the technology uh, landscape. And then when Clara, my now wife, um, got a job in Seattle after she graduated in 2013, I focused my job search to getting a job in Seattle when I graduated in 2014. So um, I went to the on-campus recruiting opportunity for Amazon that was hiring product managers. And I exercised my one-time option as an MBA student who didn't have a background in tech or product management or computer science to convince a group of Amazon interviewers <laughs> I was a smart enough generalist to be effective at Amazon. And I passed that Great test. vice for action. There you go. The bar was raised, or maybe not. <laughs> and I got a job at Amazon, uh, which I started in 2014. Um, and I moved to Seattle. And I had a great first job at Amazon working for a wonderful manager who's still a good friend of mine. Her name is Meg. And, um, and we were working on a payments product. Nothing to do with investing for impact, not really having much to do with social impact, but it was really great introduction to Amazon because we were building a product that was competing with Square. So rewind the clock to 2014 was all about plugging in a little dongle into your phone and swiping cards at the food truck or at the ice cream store or at the farmer's market or at the flea market. And we were competing with Square and there's a whole strategic reasoning for why Amazon was in that business. But the cool thing that I got to do was all kinds of different product management. I was dealing with in-stock management and vendor management. I was dealing with working with third-party um, partners um, that we were assorting the product in. Um, we had a, a shift in strategy and then I became the app product manager so that the 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 merchant using the system was actually using the software that my team and I were building together. And I was working with iOS apps and Android apps. And I just basically got thrown into the deep end of like, build this technology product that's also a hardware product and a software product. So I got about a year's worth of um, hardware, software, and other product management, plus intro to Amazon. Um, I had the great opportunity to do this training that I don't know they still do, which is they, they send the management types to the warehouse for a week to learn what it's like to work at the distribution uh, center. They call them fulfillment centers, but it's the warehouse. Um, and that was a really cool and eye-opening week. And it really gave me a lot of appreciation for the folks who are working in those fulfillment centers. I was very uh, sore after a week <laughs> of working in a fulfillment center. Um, so I was on my honeymoon. This is October 2015. And I got a call uh, saying, hey, um, I hope you're having fun on your honeymoon. Don't worry, you still have a job, but 
we're shutting down the business that you work on. Amazon's made a strategic decision. We're not going to be competing with Square on this anymore. RIP Amazon register. Um, have a great honeymoon. Call us back if you have questions. So I was like, great. It's the honeymoon. Had a good time. Came back and I started looking for another job in Amazon. And a, uh, a VP I liked and respected was working on a secret project. And I went and talked to him and I went and talked to a bunch of other people who I was lucky enough to network in and, and, and meet. And um, he couldn't tell me what the secret project was, but he said it would be interesting and hard. So I took a bit of a flyer and this is sort of serendipity opportunity number N on this story. Um, and I ended up working on the Alexa team, unbeknownst to me because it had not yet launched. And so I was working on the Alexa team and I was trying to introduce shopping by voice mm -hmm. to Alexa, which is a really hard problem because I bet most of your listeners and viewers have used Amazon. And it's a very visually rich experience. There's an image, there's a product description, there's ratings, there's um, all kinds of reviews, there's all kinds of information. People who like this also like, you might like all this stuff on the Amazon detail page. And you just strip all of that out and you have to be able to describe what it is someone's buying in three to five seconds. And the product descriptions are not written for short, pippy, you know, voice responses. So it was a really hard problem. And I got to work on that hard problem for a couple of years. And after a couple of years working on it, we shipped some really cool stuff. I think the feature I'm proudest of is Where's My Stuff, which is package tracking. At the time, I didn't realize this, but one of the number one sources of customer service calls to Amazon uh, was, and it makes sense, it's Where's My Stuff? Where's My Package? It's not here. And that costs Amazon a lot of money because they have real people answering those questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so we launched a very straightforward feature that would do package tracking by voice. And we, we figured out that it saved the company a lot of money. Um, and I can't say specifically how much, but get the idea. There was then an opportunity to work on another new team. So I guess I like doing these sort of zero to one type things. Someone was building out another great manager um, whose name is Beatrice was building out a new function um, to do two different things. One was to build features that would target um, older users and the people who were in their sort of care community. And the second was to deal with and think about privacy, not from the perspective of engineering or compliance, which Amazon was very good at, but from the perspective of product. And I really wanted to go work on the Alexa for aging and Alexa for care community product because I had a, um, an uncle, great uncle, who uh, was a retired professor. He was blind because he had macular degeneration and he had Parkinson's. So he couldn't use Braille because he had tremors. And um, he had cancer. He, had a very, he was dealt a very bad hand. Really smart guy really gregarious and outgoing. And um, we gave him an echo device so that he could ask for the time, get medication reminders, play the Yankees game. Now, I'm a Phillies fan because I grew up outside of Philadelphia. So it pains me to say that my Uncle Bob wanted to listen to the Yankees, but much love. He was a Yankees fan. That's what he wanted to listen to. 
And actually, the person who, who liked this device the most wasn't Uncle Bob. It was actually Aunt Wilma, who didn't have to constantly be telling Uncle Bob what time it was or to be tuning the radio to the Yankees game. Um, and it gave him a sense of independence. Well, there was one problem. Beatrice had hired an excellent person to work on this um, aging and care community thing like a week before I learned about it. And so uh, she said, well, I can't hire you for that, but do you want to come work on privacy? I was like, well, privacy? Who cares about privacy? And I did some thinking about it. I started talking to a few friends. And I started to realize that privacy and data ethics and um, sort of consent management was like a really big problem for the tech industry mm-hmm. and was sort of an about to be a big bigger problem. Um, and it seemed like a really interesting place to go and have some impact. So I took a flyer on privacy and I went to work for Beatrice and I was the first product manager working on privacy in Alexa. And we were building features for the Echo devices, like a privacy center. And we were also handling like gnarly stuff around compliance with the general data protection regulation. Everybody and their friends know about the GDPR. And if you're a product manager or you want to be a product manager and you want to work in a technology company that uses data, if you don't know about GDPR, you will know about GDPR. Uh, and shake your smiling because clearly you've been exposed to the GDPR fund. It's my favorite four-letter word. Second favorite four-letter word is CP- CCPA or CPRA, right? <laughs> well, and and HIPAA is not too far behind that. HIPAA, SOC 2, COPPA. I mean, you got it. All the great compliance acronyms. That's a conversation uh, over bourbon, Rob. Okay, I don't think we have enough bourbon <laughs> going for that long. But my point is, um, I got an opportunity to, again, be in this sort of zero to one space and so stay tuned on that. Um, and had a, it was great because it was really hard. And it's almost an existential question for Alexa. It's like, is it listening when I'm not talking to it? And the answer, by the way, is no. It is not listening except for the wake word. So the way the technology works is it's effectively streaming in little 30 second to two minute increments, all of the background noise happening. And it's only listening for the wake word, which can be Alexa, Echo, computer, or Amazon. And I think you might now be able to do uh, your own custom wake word. But at the time, there were just the four. And everything else is white noise or wake word. And then they delete on the device. It's all on device. They delete that two-minute stream on a rolling basis. Um And you can disable the microphones by pressing a physical button on the device, and then the whole thing turns red. Um, At least that's how it was when I was working there, and it was very clear. And yet we had a terrible time convincing people that it wasn't always listening to them because, as it turns out, Amazon's recommendation algorithms are really accurate. And so if you were talking about something, it was likely that your behavioral data somewhere in the background was indicating that you might actually be interested in buying that new Nalgene bottle. And then when you were talking about it with your your roommate or your spouse or your friend. And then when you went on to Amazon and it said like, are you sure you're interested? Hey, this Nalgene bottle is on sale. I'd be like, oh my God, it's listening to me. Not listening to you. Um, Believe me, Amazon has better things to do with its compute than process all of the background conversations happening in all of the households and places where Echo devices are. That being said, it was a big barrier to purchase, right? So we were building things like, Alexa, why did you say that? Or the privacy features. 
Um, and while I was doing that, you know, this is 2018, 2019. Um, and I was becoming aware of more and more the question of algorithmic bias. And it had to do with algorithmic bias in speech patterns and algorithmic bias in dialects because I was working in, in voice and natural language understanding and, and speech recognition. Um, but I also became aware of it through the work of Dr. Joy B, who has a new book. Um, who It's all about the... Um, the Algorithmic fact Justice League, right? Bingo. Um, Algorithmic Justice League and other folks who are working on this, Meg Mitchell, Tim Nick Cabrew, really wonderful human beings who were raising questions around the accuracy, fairness, bias of... Um, of recommendation systems, especially facial recognition, um, and the the unintended consequences associated with um, AI systems making consequential decisions in high risk areas. So, being an Amazonian, I wrote a six page document arguing that we should be uh, investing in a tech ethics leader inside of Alexa for these reasons, and. You know, it was a pretty good document. By this point, I had worked at Amazon for five years and I knew how to write a six-page document, at least reasonably well. I was doing this on the nights and weekends, which was fine. Um, very Amazon. And the long story short is, the folks with whom I reviewed it were like, this is a great idea. We should totally do this. but Not right now. And I just mistimed it. And Shake, you know this. Amazon goes through these cycles of hiring and digesting headcount. Mm -hmm. And we were in a digestion period. We had just hired a bunch of folks. And it was like, hey, we don't have a ton of net new headcount to go take a flyer on Rob's good but unproven tech ethics concept or ethical AI concept. So I was told not now. And right around that time, I got this serendipitous call from someone with whom I had worked in the past. Um, and I had worked with her because she worked at the company called Omidyar Network that I had been in at Stanford. I was the course assistant for the head of Omidyar Network, who on the side was teaching a class. He was a teaching a class about impact investing. I had been doing impact investing. I needed a job to help pay for Stanford because newsflash, Stanford is great. And if you're thinking about going to Stanford for graduate school, especially the business school, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to the Stanford Graduate School of Business. By all means, you should do that. Uh, it's not cheap. So I needed to supplement my walking around money um, with some extra income. And I got a job working for this guy who was the head of Omidyar Network, whose name is Matt Bannock. And Matt had someone at his, on his team help develop the course with me. Uh, and her name is Paula Goldman. And so Paula... Um, had recently taken a job at Salesforce as our chief ethical and humane use officer. And she called me up and we were chatting. And she said, look, I'm curious, do you know anybody who can translate ethical use principles into the product and software development lifecycle? And I was like, no, I don't, but I would be willing to try myself. And so I wrote her a proposal about what that would look like. I did a couple interviews. I did a couple more interviews. And I had this serendipitous opportunity to join Paula as one of the first folks in our Office of Ethical and Humane Use of Technology, which was started at Salesforce in 2018. And I joined in 2019 as um, to basically build out a new function 
back to the zero to one. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was as if I came in and there was a piece of paper that they had written down, embed ethics into software development lifecycle slash product development lifecycle, parentheses, hire someone, strike through, Rob. And it was like, here's the paper, go figure it out. Um, which was great, you know, and as a product manager and as a nascent leader, it was great to be able to identify and build out a roadmap like that. Um, and I was very lucky because at Salesforce, we already had on board someone who was at the time working in our AI research organization. Mm-hmm. And her name is Kathy Baxter. Kathy's our principal architect of uh, ethical AI and is the co-lead of the team that I work on. So she and I co-lead our responsible AI work because inside large companies, there are sometimes reorgs and we brought Kathy in to work for Paula and I was working for Paula and Kumbaya. Um, we've built out this new function in the company. Fast forward four plus years later, we're um, elbows deep in all things responsible AI and tech. Um, this is a great job. I feel incredibly lucky to have been in the right place at the right time more than once. Um, but to have always followed that North Star from all the way back of how can we use business to create positive impact in the world? And I feel like we could always be doing more and we could always be doing better. And it's not without its pitfalls, but we are doing the right thing for the right reason, the right people. And that is how I feel about my job. What an amazing journey right there. Um, I think I counted nine distinct moments of serendipity. So that that's definitely the guiding philosophy there. One of the things I wanted to come back to, Rob, is um, you mentioned when you first started at um, Amazon, it was very eye-opening to go to a fulfillment center and see what operations is like and experiencing it yourself. When you came to Salesforce and started diving into what building responsible tech meant, what was the, the equivalent of spending a week in the fulfillment center? That's a great question. Salesforce is very different than Amazon because most of Amazon's products that I worked on were consumer-facing. Alexa, um, even the the Amazon Register product was merchant-facing and it wasn't too much of a logical leap to uh, see what it would be like to be a merchant using it. And we could go talk to merchants and I would. Um, Clara hated it because we would always go to farmer's markets and (laughs) I would always be like, so why did you choose that payment processor and not ours? And like, what about this one? And let me see the app. And how, she's like, can we just buy it already and go? Um, so anyway, it's harder to do user research with enterprise CRM. Um, but to that point, I became um, good friends with someone on our team and on our sister team in our research and insights organization, which is our user experience researchers. And this person's name is Emily Witt. And she is our primary liaison to the ethical and humane use work inside of user research. So to really understand what it's like as a Salesforce admin, as a Salesforce user, to use the products that we're building and then to really understand the products. Like who are our users? They're salespeople, service agents, marketers, website merchandisers, data analysts. You know, it's a business um, enterprise user persona. And so I really um, got deep in those user personas. And one of the best ways to do that was to um, read a lot of user research, but also to do work on Trailhead. So Salesforce has this free online learning platform called Trailhead. It's all national park themed. 
Um, so you can be a mountaineer and you can be a ranger and there's all these ranks and it's gamified and it's actually great because you can learn all about how the software works. And for me as a product manager, if you don't know how the software works, then you can't make good decisions about the software. So I needed to get smart about it. Awesome. Well, and when um, it seems uh, since that team has been around since uh, 2018, at least looking at big tech, um, Salesforce is definitely one of the companies that embraced that a lot earlier than the rest. And um, look, looking at the looking at the sales cycles that Salesforce has, do you, do you feel the focus on responsible AI practices has ever been a differentiator against other vendors? I mean, if anything, it's a differentiator now. Um, and that's because generative AI has thrown everyone for a loop. Um, generative AI is a really interesting topic when it comes to trust, data privacy, ethics, because um, large language models have a tendency to get it wrong. Uh, we all call these hallucinations. I don't like that term because it anthropomorphizes the technology more than it already has been. Um, they're just confidently wrong answers. It can also generate biased or toxic responses. And then, you know, corporate information and personal information can leak into the training sets for these large language models. And so large companies are really worried about confidently wrong answers, especially in high-risk, consequential um, areas like routing freight or like legal decision-making or something like that. Um, and bias and toxicity is a real reputational risk. And last, if you're an organization and you have all of this proprietary data, you don't want it leaking into a large foundation model as their training data. Um, and so, you know, for us, Responsible AI has is addressing these kinds of questions and many more. And it's something that every single customer is asking us about. Um, and because we've been investing in it for a long time, we're able to have a good, you know, not perfect. We have a lot of work to do, but we have a good uh, initial answer to the question and we have some proof behind that initial answer, which is we're building this, 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 and this is how it works and all the details. Sounds like five years of hard work that looks like a overnight success now. Again, serendipity, number 10, <laughs> being in the right yeah. place at the right time. Well, oh, oh, looking more um, internally then, uh, Salesforce is obviously a really complex organization with lots of different needs and interests, especially as one of the OGs of the cloud world. Um, as you've been building this culture culture of uh, responsible AI and using those frameworks across a product, what's some of the internal friction you've experienced along the way as you've tried to change those frameworks? It's all about perception. So as a product manager, I hate tax. I always want to reduce friction and I want to go from idea to execution as quickly as possible, of course, as safely as possible. And so when people perceive the ethical use team as a tax collector, meaning do this checklist, go through this process, slow down, then we are very, uh, we are less effective. But because we've positioned ourselves as amplifiers and accelerators, to our product and engineering colleagues. And in fact, we are in the product organization. We report up through the product organization intentionally because we want to be a partner to our product colleagues and our engineering colleagues. And as a result, we are able to actively work together with those product and engineering colleagues to create things 
and ethical differentiators that are actually helping us get to market faster and not positioning ourselves as a tax collector or as a barrier. It's a great perspective. Um, in, in looking at um, uh, just product management in general, has in, in your experiences um, as a PM, do you view uh, doing product management for a, an AI product to be meaningfully different from a, for a non-AI product? It's becoming different. And the reason is that we're moving from a deterministic to a probabilistic product, right? So product management could be distilled down at some level to sit in a room like this conference room I'm sitting in and use a whiteboard like that one and figure out all of the if-then statements. If the user does this, then the product should do that. If the user does this, then the product should do that. Corner case. If the user does this, but this thing fails, then the product should do that. And so, and there's just a law, a product requirements document is at its sort of atomic level, that list of if-then statements so that we can then work with our engineering and design colleagues to figure out, you know, how to build it. Generative AI has turned deterministic into probabilistic where the system itself doesn't always do the same thing based on the input. It does something slightly different. And so we're moving towards a world in which product management actually becomes all about prompt writing, where you are developing natural language instructions to a system to work with another system and within these guardrails to do this thing and to um, constrain itself this way or to... uh, amplify that. And it, it, it's becoming, I think, much more artistic and much less deterministic. So I anticipate product management having a much different flavor over the next 12 to 18 months, especially when you're working on the AI tools. But everybody can do this too. Um, so I think it's a really interesting time to be in product. What aspects of that has translated into um, internal PM trainings at Salesforce, is there any habits people have to unlearn? Yeah, I mean, everybody is using our own internal instance of our Einstein uh, tools. Einstein is the brand name for our generative AI and predictive AI technology. And so we have a playground and people can use it to put inputs in and get outputs out. So the other day, someone sent out the meeting notes from a very long, day-long meeting. And They took the transcript and they took their own notes and they dumped them into the playground and they generated a summary and the key takeaways. You know, that is something that might have taken a product manager or whoever drew the short straw uh, a long time to do. And the system was able to help them um, do it much more easily. Um, Similarly, you can think about uh, how to scan for personally identifiable information in a much more... um, effective way if you're using a tool for it rather than using a um, a set, a list, right. you know? Hmm, interesting. Uh, looking at an, another side of Salesforce, it's obviously a very uh, global company. Um, as you think about um, what ethics by design means and what day-to-day act- actions are, is there any regional or industry variances uh, given Salesforce is a global blueprint. Do different product teams look at it differently in parts of the world? I mean, we will. 
Uh, right now, most of our generative AI tools are available. At, so we're recording this in late October of 2023. So if you're watching this later, it's <laughs> true. Hopefully, it won't be true because um, we're you know we're working on uh, non-English and non-US, um, and this is all in you know forward-looking statement. You know, don't make your buying decisions based on what you're what you're listening to on this. This is not Nostradamus. Thank you. Um, but you know, I'll get from a from a from a responsible AI perspective, sociocultural biases are very location dependent, um, and so what may be biased or quasi somewhat biased or toxic or 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 offensive in the U.S. and in English is going to vary across the world. And uh, we have to be very cogent about that. For example, certain Spanish language words are perfectly colloquial in Spain, but are um, offensive in Mexico or Colombia. Mm -hmm. And so it's not simply about translation. It's also about localization. And doing that requires a combination of people and, te and technology in order to, to do that localization in a way that optimizes for accuracy, safety, and honesty. Absolutely. Looking more broadly as well, beyond Salesforce, uh, responsible AI is definitely an a industry-wide duty, uh, not just the mission of a single company. What does your collaboration um, look like with other companies when it comes to building? You know, I'm really lucky. Um, I mentioned Paula before. So Paula Goldman, our Chief Ethical and Humane Use Officer, is on um, the National AI Advisory Council, and she chairs the Generative AI Subcommittee. So she's working at the policy level. Um, Kathy Baxter, who I mentioned earlier, uh, as well, our Principal Architect of Ethical AI, is working with the National Institutes of Standard and Technology on their risk management framework for generative AI. And we recently signed on to the White House's commitments to building um, safe and, and responsible generative AI, along with a number of other peer companies um, like Microsoft and Google and Amazon and others. Um, and so that's the official stance. And the unofficial stance is that it's still a somewhat small community and we all get a chance to talk to one another um, from time to time, either during workshops or at academic conferences or um, in sort of stakeholder engagement uh, opportunities like through the World Economic Forum. Um, and so, you know, there's an upcoming AI governance summit that the World Economic Forum is hosting and I'm fortunate enough to be on one of their committees and going and I'll be able to meet a lot of my, my colleagues and peers from around the industry um, at that kind of a meeting where we're sharing best practices and approaches Right now, it's very much a, hey, the more we can all do this well, the better off we all are as an industry. Um, and so it's a rising tide kind of thing. Nice. Uh, shifting gears a bit, uh, looking at uh, sort of AI on a, on a personal level, uh, you mentioned using the um, uh, Einstein playground to do a lot of mundane internal tasks like uh, summarizing meeting notes. But uh, as an individual, uh, what are some ways that you use AI in your personal workflows? Oh, I mean, me summarizing stuff is absolutely top of mind. You know, getting started with, you know, write an outline for this document um, or organize this strategy. And it can take the first crack at something, especially when I'm starting from that. I mentioned a blank sheet of paper earlier, but it's more like blank Google document, you know, or blank Quip document or blank Canvas in Slack. And I can use um, Einstein to 
because it's within the corporate boundary, I can put, you know, corporate information in there um, to help me with any number of tasks. You know, we're going to start working on next year's uh, plan. So I'm going to ask, hey, take this year's plan. And I know we're going to tweak A, B, and C. Um, write me an outline for next year's. And it can save me 15 minutes. Easy doing that kind of thing. Wonderful. Um, now, my very last question for you, Rob, is uh, just um, traveling back in time a bit. And um, let's say I'm a PM just beginning my career, and I really want to work on AI tech. What questions should I be asking the companies that I'm interviewing with to make sure that it'll be worth my time? Ooh, great question. Well, hard to say. I mean, as you know, I didn't start out as a product manager, and I kind of backed into it because I needed to move to Seattle so that I could <laughs> my romantic relationship, uh, which worked out. Um, so step one is to meet a partner. Step one, yeah. And it's harder to find a good partner than it is to find a good <laughs> job. So, you know, always use that life advice. Um, but, you know, I would say that curiosity is a great tool for a PM and ability to learn is another great tool. When I'm hiring people, I'm always screening for curiosity and willingness to learn and also willingness to change your mind. Uh, because there are certain things that you might want to believe are true. And then you might learn over time that they're quite as true as you thought. Um, but as far as questions to ask, it's, you know, questions around, okay, what are the foundational technologies that we're going to build on? What are the jobs to be done with AI? Um, candidly, there are a lot of really fun but ultimately, mm, you know, there, there's a lot of AI toys out there. You know, mm -hmm. write me a haiku about eating pizza in Seattle. It'll do that. You know, generate me an image of Shake riding the ferry to Bainbridge Island. It'll do that too. You know, that's cute and fun and good for my text threads with my friends. But like, that's not actually changing anything. And where I think... I'm biased. I work in enterprise software, which is usually kind of boring enterprise software kind of thing, right? This is where generative AI is going to have a huge impact because it's going to augment human work. And it's going to remove a lot of those rote and repetitive aspects of work or of school or of all kinds of, I mean, we now, Clara and I have a couple of kids, like I mentioned, we have a lot of like rote management stuff that we have to do we, when we have meetings about stuff for the house. We call it a, a board meeting for our, our bad nonprofit called our household. <laughs> um, and anyhow, um, it can really augment work and it can create opportunities for humans to exercise judgment and empathy, but only when you have a good job to be done. When you're looking to be a PM in an AI organization, are they looking at everything as a nail and AI as the hammer? Or are they actually trying to solve a real problem that you can get your, your heart and mind behind? Um, I would argue, again, I'm biased, that the tools of AI are much more interesting to address and to run after uh, and worthwhile to address and run after than are the toys. Um, but maybe I'm just no fun because I'm a middle-aged guy and I don't like toys anymore. Um, so you can take it for what it's worth. Well, the, the toys just get more complicated and more expensive, but, uh, but they're still Fair fun. Enough. huh? Well, Rob, that's uh, all I got for now. This was a super fun to chat together. I'll probably come back to you in 18 months and see if your predictions and how product management is 
changing or accurate or not. Awesome. Uh, well, I will look forward to my AI meeting assistant uh, <laughs> schedule our next uh, podcast recording episode. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Shake. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 